32 counties. United. By coughs and people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland, beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. Like you, our dear patron supporters. Thank you for crawling on board the Lewis of Patreon tram trot now lost us. <laughs> I'm trying to find a transport metaphor. Why Thank you transport? for I don't know. Thank you for alighting the cruise of Patreon dreams now stopping at tropical islands on patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Uh, we really appreciate your support. You are absolutely brilliant. You have kept this thing going um, through stormy waters. <laughs> Tsunamis, strong surges and Bermuda Triangles aplenty. If you want to be the Captain Birdseye to our fish finger, why don't you go to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland, cast your net wide and catch some monthly subscriptions. Can I add to it? Yeah. Why don't you, instead of keeping your files in a filing cabinet, subscribe to us? I don't, that's, I don't. That's like a seafaring. Don't you know the ad where they talk about keeping their files in the filing cabinet on a boat? We're talking about boats. Okay, no, let's move on. Okay, right. That's that. Now, um, hi, gay. It's Pride season. Uh, this week, we're looking at queer movements that are tackling aspects of society that may not have traditionally been seen as core to LGBTQ plus rights. Oh my God, gay. Slay gays. <laughs> um. I am utterly opposed to the term Pride Month. Um, I don't know why. It just rubs me up the wrong way. Um, Another thing, Una. Come on. (laughs) Jesus. Um, So this week on the pod, we are talking about how queer activists in the US are confronting gun control and gun violence. Following a wave of terrifying mass shootings, what can queer activism teach the often seemingly insurmountable battle for basic gun control in America. We'll be talking to New York-based Irishman Paul Rowley about the group Gays Against Guns. But first, it's the State of the Nation. Um, On board Planola is a full serial at the moment. When is it going to be like, you know, the kind of Apple TV series? Um a la We Crashed or The Dropout? Well, now that the the like scope includes relationships within Onboard Planola. It's gone full dynasty. Oh, I thought you were about to tell me not to talk about it. <laughs> Phew! Well, now it's like a full on Netflix series. Like, apart from the fact that the implications of it are actually what is shaping our public realm and how uh, we live and where we live and what we live in. If it wasn't for all that, it would be absolutely super super juicy. But because that is um, these decisions and these dalliances are actually resulting in a lower quality of life for the people of Ireland, it's actually depressing martini. It is Um, astonishing, isn't it? This week, the High Court overturned permission for 300 apartments and 22 houses in Monkstown, um, which is another um, decision that's been made by board Planola that's been overturned by the High Court. So you have to keep wondering where is this train 
to keep with the transport metaphors leading to and when is it going to come to a halt and um, mumblings of uh, the sounders who are just trying to do their job and on board Planola reaching boiling point and just being like for fuck's sake are reaching my ears so um, it will be interesting to see what comes of this because there's definitely um, a lot of shit going down apparently the most recent announcement from on the ditch was that uh, Paul Hyde is in a relationship with the head of planning who took it upon herself to uh, do inspections on Saturdays, which was nothing in Cork, which was not in her brief or whatever. So it's like, what is going on? This is now full dynasty. And also the people in Umbor Planola um, were raised, raised in an industrial relations meeting, I think, about reports being... Uh, changed by uh, members of the board, their inspectors' reports. You know, it's one of those things that it's like, at what point we need to act now, right? The government needs to act now because it's going to end up in a shit show as it keeps trundling along. And as crazy as this sounds, they're, the onboard Planola decisions need to stop now. I don't think that the public has confidence in onboard Planola as an entity. And I don't think that we can categorically say that decisions happening, given the state of the entity from now on and given what's been emerging, uh, can be trusted, regardless of big or small. And there needs to be a wide scale investigation and a massive audit of all of the decisions that have been made while uh, these people who are either stepping aside or being um, pointed out as uh, the relationships with with different people, be that external for firms participating in planning applications or appealing on a, a planning applications, the trust is gone. It's broken, and and people have been wondering for years what's all the story with all these things being overruled, and why are they taking all these like cases with the judicial reviews, and yet they're losing loads of them. And God, that was a mad thing to put there, wasn't it? Like, you know, it, it, it's that kind of thing when it. You know, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, whatever. But then on the other side of the allegations of nimbyism of like, stop taking all these cases, you're slowing down development and progress. Uh, no, what is, just like, ignore all that nonsense. <laughs> so yeah, the tea is continuing to pour out of the cracked pot that is on board Planola. <laughs> I mean... And fair, like fair play to the ditch for for doing all that. McClifford is doing good work as well in the Examiner. Um, it has obviously been a long-standing uh, podcast campaign of yours, Andrea, for going on years now to actually look into the banana townness. Uh, I do believe on board Planola holds a record on United Ireland for its entries in its bananas. Um, so maybe we need to bring back those World Cup inflatable fives bananas and just start pasting the building with them. And maybe getting them branded up. Mm. On do you board need plan- bananas. <laughs> um, do you need planning for that now? If you want to stick a load of inflatable bananas to a building. Oh my God. Speaking of planning, um, we have a big court case coming up, which is uh, with subset being brought to court um, about planning issues for murals and advertisements that um, are contentious, according to Dublin City Council. Um 
it is a, a question that needs to be asked about our public realm. Who has who has the ownership of it? And should obviously public art should be part of that? Should that be controlled by Dublin City Council? Should that be a um, second entity who taking that on board to control it? Um, should corporates be allowed to pay for public space to be branded? Um, that is a question that is being raised at the moment. There was um, some questionable content coming out of the subset Twitter over the weekend um, that really was um, atrocious in terms of um, f- to fund their uh, documentary that they're making about themselves and their journey. They need 10K and um, they put up their repeal mural and said, look, we helped you out. It's time to help us out, um, which obviously didn't go down very well. And then uh, there was questions around why they had anglicised Gronium Well for the um, apparent mural, which was actually an ad and would not would not admit that it was an ad because there'd been no commercial brief given, even though um, even though the brand had photographed it, it had bottles of the brand in it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the artist who did it was thrown kind of thrown under the bus to be like um, they wanted to be inclusive, but but. I suppose going against our culture is not the way to be inclusive. So, yeah, there's a lot going on around that case, I think. It'll be interesting to see the outcome of it. Uh, all right. Um, now, the airport, Dalton Phillips, man of the week. I watched um, some of the committee hearing. This is the head of the DAA who was talking about... Um, you know, the cues and it won't happen again. And like Lynn Boylan's face when he was talking about like, now me, myself, I use the platinum service going through uh, the airport, an absolute steal at 295. Um, I was just like, bro, like you are just not, you're not set up for for what's about to go down. Oh my God. But also 295, that was from his uh, travel budget i.e. he didn't pay for it. Oh, well, sure. Why would he be paying for it, Andre? He's an important man who was going to the Middle East the weekend the airport was effectively collapsing. Also, well, he going was... going to the Middle East to get it, to work on the contract for the other airport they're going to control. Good luck. Well, good luck. <laughs> um, what was I going to say about that as well? Oh, yeah. Interestingly, all of this kind of framing of the DA is mainly about like Sunday. You know, it was just Sunday, me, myself, going through the L VIP VIP lounge on the Saturday, you know, couldn't have foreseen. And when I, when, you know, when I got to Kuwait and I just heard everything's falling apart, I mean, obs, I came back. Um, I would totally use that VIP lane if I had the opportunity. I had the spani, had the spawns, yeah. Not even the spawns, but if I, like, if I, like, I don't think it's worth it, but if you've got like six hours and you're not going on your holiday to Florida, um, throw some money at that problem so I don't blame him now well of course if you had a, a, a an expenses budget when you actually worked in the airport it would be um, so anyway what I was going to say the whole thing around oh this was just Sunday 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 nonsense everybody knows this has been going on for ages March uh, I think Paul Murphy and RBB back in October they were talking about it we all know the context of how they got rid of all the staff instead of um, keeping them on throughout the pandemic and are now struggling to rehire them obviously there's issues with conditions there's issues with pay there's issues with these ridiculous kind of flexible contracts that they have them on where you don't know what how many hours of the week you're working we know also, you have to get a taxi to go to work because it's at 3am we've no transport in Ireland Ridic. but also this th- Saturday in the airport was a shit show like I know, like some of my own family members were flying on Saturday. 
and had an absolute nightmare. Lifts broken, queuing for bags, queuing to get in, queuing for this, that and the other, stuck on a plane. No staff to bring people off the plane that they're stuck on runways on. Like, so Dalton coming out here, giving us stories that it was just a one-off Sunday thing. Also, their plan. Captain Vague of HMS, what are you talking about? Four point plan. Oh, this and holding and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's so nonsense, like corporate garble speak. It's like, tell people what you're meant to be doing. Also, a holding area is like, that's just called the outside, babes. You know, so like, <laughs> and then this whole, their whole messaging around, around it was just like, everybody needs to arrive like super early for their flights, which they're doing on the weekend. It's like, um, do you not think that telling thousands of people to all come at the same time when their flights are at different times is going to increase the queues? If you're going to a gig, right, and 20 people rock up to the gig and then like 10 minutes later, 20 other people rock into the gig, grand, everyone gets searched, they all go in. If you go, okay, the thousand people who are going to the gig, you all come at once. Obviously, there's going to be a chaotic queue. It doesn't take much for queues to like break down. I don't know. I just don't know. Do you know what I know, Una? What? Right now, it feels like the narrative in my head a lot of the time is, for fuck's sake, does anything in this country work? And I hate to generalise, and but we're in a situation where our transport system doesn't work. We can't get taxis. You can't get into the airport. You can't get on your flights. You can't get out of the country. You can't uh, go clubbing. You can't uh, get into town. You can't go to hospital you have to make an appointment for the emergency department in the beacon like is just is that not an oxymoron of emergency <laughs> sorry you haven't made an appointment anyway that's a sideline uh our health systems collapsed um we can't build houses there's nowhere to live we've no people to work the services that we need for society to run we like what happened? Like no one to there's going to be no one to drive the buses, no one to drive the trains, no one to uh, no one to do your nails, no one to do your hair, no one to serve you coffee. Everyone's going to be so tired because they're understaffed and overworked. Uh, like literally in my coffee shop this morning, I was like, "How's things?" It's like it's absolutely. I'm so tired. What is sleep? There's no staff, so we're all working extra hours. It's like. Okay, what is going to happen when there's nobody able to afford to do these jobs? Nobody's able to afford to live in this country. And unless you're a tech bro who wants to live in a studio, um, which is under-regulated because it's a strategic housing development that's been pushed through by our crap planning that doesn't work. Like, what? what is the point of the country? Yes, we are oh, facing... We are good crack. We are good crack. We are good... Yeah, we're great crack and we're very friendly here in Ireland. No, um, I think uh, we what we have is a perfect storm of um, systemic failures uh, that have been always on- ongoing, but were really compounded by a decade of Finnegal who mm. don't know what they're doing Um and believe firmly that they do know what they're doing because they're completely blinkered by their own um, distorted sense of uh, self and they can't self-examine and their ideology just blinds them uh, into thinking that they're doing a good job, which obviously they're not because look around, right? As you say, all these things are broken down. And in addition to that, you know, 
people need to realise like Ireland is, is kind of an outlier in Europe in this and Dublin, the capital, is, is an outlier as a city. Other places are working. You know, obviously they're dealing with the same kind of issues around staffing crisis and the great resignation and uh, rising energy prices and inflation, but the fundamentals are sound elsewhere. And I think that basically what has happened as we have a new generation that has come of age that has actually expectations with regards to things functioning and they're not and people won't put up with them and people aren't emigrating, right? They're being exiled by the housing crisis. So I think that what we're actually experiencing here is the beginning of what's actually going to be some quite profound breakdowns um, in various sectors from... uh, Stand by for a bonus episode. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that what we're going to see is an autumn of discontent. We're going to see mass protest actually come to the fore once people have actually, you know, come to a breaking point. But I don't think even though the struggle is so intense for people right now, and there's uh, figures out today with regards to how, surprise, surprise, lower incomes and renters are mostly hit, are hit most of all by inflation. So we also have this political establishment that is not being impacted by the things that people are experiencing every day. But within that breakdown, there is going to be a desire for better systems, things that function properly, uh, just the n- normality of uh, a democracy in Europe. And this is where we're going to really, really start to see the profound political change that's going to happen and, and the outcome of of the chaotic uh, decade that Fine Gael, in collusion with Fianna Fáil, have imposed on people where shit has just got worse, unless you are, of course, an institutional investor or REIT or any of these people that they serve. Speaking of that, I just wanted to throw some uh, petrol on the fire of what is the result of all of that. Uh, There was a piece today, well, maybe not a piece, but it was highlighted by Dan O'Brien, who's the uh, chief economist of the Institute of International European Affairs and the Business Post. And he was saying that Dublin's tech sector is generating similar international service revenue as London's entire financial sector. And that's not per capita. That is like like for like in the same currency. So we have all this money here. So we are literally a tax haven to make people richer and not um, getting the fruits of what should be what we've been sold of like how great it is to have all this investment in. Um, And then the second thing that will throw some petrol on this is that Keno Callan and Sock Dems brought a land price register bill to uh, Cabinet today um, about... Um, controlling speculation and to try and get a hold on what's going on and to m- make things fairer. And Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens just voted down it completely with no amendments or alternative solutions. So it was just a complete rejection. And it was of a measure that would help prevent land hoarding, land speculation and land price inflation. So there it is in black and white is that there is no appetite to stop what's happening. Yeah. I mean, this is how it's the system has been designed um, through a mix of stupidity, um, ideology and really in, intention and these kind of disaster capitalist policies that came in, uh, Michael Noonan and then Pascal Donoghue and Simon Coveney and indeed Alan Kelly in housing. Um, and uh, of course, um, Owen Murphy last seen in Uzbekistan or somewhere. <laughs> um but I think as, as frenetic as it is, you know, I really feel like at the moment we're in this energetic space that is a blend of 2007 and 2010 energy. It's kind of that precipice 
2007 thing where people are just like knew the whole thing was going to burst, but we're just like barreling towards it anyway, like full Graham Nuttall painting. And then the 2010 energy of like the 2010 energy of like full scale depression, the, the shutters coming down, everyone leaving. And in that time, you know, if people weren't old enough to remember that time, there was this constant thing of like, if everybody leaves, like, there won't be anyone here to stay to make things better and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. People need to keep the faith. L- look at the polls. Like, it's, it, it is not beyond, I don't support any political party, right? But it is not beyond the realms of possibility that Fine Gael in particular failed so badly right now that come the next general election, whenever that is, could even be by the end of this year, we will probably see a smaller kind of home to vote movement of recently exiled uh, young young people from the country coming back to to boot this government out. Now the Greens won't suffer as much. I don't buy into the narrative that a lot of political commentators are making that they'll be decimated in the same way that they were in the previous government. I don't buy into that because for the most part, Green Party voters are not suffering to the same extent, particularly in urban areas. Let's face it, middle class, upper middle class, well meaning, all that kind of stuff, and so they're not experiencing the same economic hit. Now, obviously, they're disappointed by, uh, in the Greens. You know, it'd be very hard not to be. Um, but I don't think that they will be wiped out in the same way because obviously there's the dominant issue of the climate crisis hovering over us all the time, right? So I do think that the the wheel is turning a little bit again and we're getting into a click of an energetic moment that is going to be very difficult to navigate. It's going to be very stressful all-encompassing. Like you say, Andrea, that feeling of like, everything's broken, what is going on? But if people just kind of hold on to uh, the the fact that this is also all evidence of things manifesting in change um, and manifesting hopefully in in a new uh, vista of Ireland, um, north and south, that will be economically, socially, culturally egalitarian, and where people don't have to suffer to do basic things, um, have you know very simple aspirations or access basic services. It's not going to change overnight. We're in this process. This is what we're in. And a process can be painful as well. Now, let's go to our main bit. So what has become known as Pride Month um, is often in countries where LGBTQ plus rights exist, a a corporate maelstrom of meaningless uh, co-optation, I suppose. But that doesn't mean that this time of year is incredibly important, not just in the in the basically all countries um, where LGBTQ plus people are oppressed, pretty much all the world. Um, of course, uh, more so in some places than in others, but also as a moment where activism that is genuinely intersectional in the truest sense of the word can emerge. In Ireland, a meeting took um, recently took place uh, of a group called Radical Queer Pride for Homes, merging queer activism and housing activism. And in the US, which is beset by the trauma, damage um, and murder, gun violence imposes on a population, a group called Gays Against Guns are gearing up not just for more direct actions and protests in relation to recent hate-filled mass shootings, but also for the anniversary of their genesis in the aftermath of the Pulse Club shooting in Orlando in this month. Joining us to discuss a different kind of lens on Pride is one of Gag's central figures, the Irish filmmaker Paul Rowley, who lives in New York. Paul, before we start, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. 
Hey, Aluna, it's uh, great to be on the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Um, so yeah, I am an Irish filmmaker. I make uh, documentaries mostly um, with my company Still Films, um, who are based in Dublin. And um, we made films such as Seaview, which was uh, where we worked with the community of asylum seekers in Mosny, um, Pajama Girls. And I'm currently making a film with Gays Against Guns, um, which is my, which is going to be finished early next year, um, all things going well. So yeah, I'm here, I'm here in New York and um, yeah, the pride switch just got turned on. You can see the, <laughs> all the corporate ads starting to flood the social media chains. I saw yesterday a funny one. Um, there was a taxi cab image and um, somebody had like kicked an image of the Ukraine flag out the door and another hand was grabbing a rainbow flag. <laughs> so it was kind of like typical of what we expect. But um, yeah, we yeah, see a lot kind of, of that sums it, sums it up in, in, in many ways. It's a funny it's a funny one to feel kind of adverse to um, in terms of how it's been co-opted. But then implicitly knowing that, you, you know, there's so, there's so many battles and there's so many diverse contexts where pride is so necessary and remains protest. Um, but let, let's talk about Gag. What was the genesis of Gays Against Guns? Well, obviously the genesis was the horrific mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub, June 12th, 2016. And I think for a lot of queer people, that's just something that we're always going to remember where we are when we heard that news, you know? I mean, nightclubs for us were for so long the only places that we could go to be safe, where we weren't going to get beaten up, where we could find partners, where we could find a community. For a lot of people who'd been rejected by their own families, it was where they found their chosen family. So for somebody to walk into a, a queer space like that, a safe space, um, which many people would describe as like a gay church almost, you know, the dance floor, um, and to open fire with a semi-automatic weapon, kill 49 people, injuring 50 plus more. I mean, it just sent shockwaves throughout the, the community around the world. You know, the previous night I'd been DJing in a, in a bar in, uh, in the East Village. And I got the subway home at like five in the morning with my friend River. Um, and the subway was filled with young queer kids coming back from various parties. I was like in kind of really scaldy drag, you know, and just feeling safe like that was something that I didn't feel in the past, you know. Um, and I just remember going to bed just so happy, just thinking, well, things are getting better. You know, it's like we can do this. We can be ourselves on public transport at five in the morning and not be worried. And then to get that news the next morning was just, I mean, it just destroyed me, you know. I can't even imagine what it's like for the families of, of people, you know. Um, so that gag came about from that, obviously, immediately. That was the catalyst. Um, the next day, people were looking for, what, what are we going to do? There was big mass gatherings at Stonewall, which is kind of like the default kind of reaction for the queer community when we're under attack like this. And... Um, People just started to get together, activists. It all started with a Facebook chain. Um, Kevin Herzog, Brian Worth, a bunch of other people were on a Facebook messaging chain and they were like, let's have a meeting. We have to do something about this. They rented a small room in the LGBTQ centre on 13th Street and hundreds and hundreds of people came. There was like, people couldn't get into the room. And so then the first outing of GAG publicly was at the New York City Pride uh, less than two weeks later when we marched down Fifth Avenue. I don't know if you've ever been to Pride in New York, but it's pretty impressive. There are millions and millions of people at it. And um, it was, I mean, obviously the whole community was hurting so badly. And 
What we did was we kind of divided our presence into two sections. The front part of it was very much in the old school act up, like up in your face, queer activism, placards, shouting, people laying down on the street in die-ins to protest, which is very much kind of echoes um, the work of ACT UP during the height of the AIDS crisis. And then behind them, in total silence, um, there were 49 figures dressed in white that were veiled and silent, and each one of them carried an image of one of the lives that had been lost that night. Um, this was the invention of um, a, a fabulous burlesque performer here in New York called Tigger Ferguson, and some of his mates had come together um, just to try and do something that was going to be performative and would kind of respect the lives lost and just let the families know that other people were thinking about them. Mm. And that was just unbelievable to see. Like these, it brought the entire city to silence as they passed. It was remarkable. And that's gone on. The human beings have gone on to be a fundamental part of GAG's activism ever since, going on to represent many other uh, victims of gun violence. Gun violence and the issue of gun control, you know, for people outside of America, it feels like this insurmountable um, cultural disconnect whereby everybody knows the solutions, everybody yeah. knows the problems, everybody knows um, the nefarious influences that permeate elected representatives, primarily the NRA and this kind of, um, you know, cult-like adherence to uh, the desire to um, commit or facilitate violence and even the most you know, rudimentary, no brainer types of basic safety in terms of regulation uh, seem to be opposed at every juncture. I'm interested in how a group of queers um, felt that their experience and their drive could lock into the various, you know, the large tapestry of activism that's occurring all around the country on this. You mentioned ACT UP and we've had Sarah Shulman on the podcast before what organizational models was GAG following um, in terms of its activism? Right. Well, there were actually a lot of people who had been active in ACT UP that came into those early GAG meetings and were fundamental to helping the group organize. There were a lot of people who also had been in Queer Nation. Um, and there were a lot of people who had Can you involved. explain Queer Nation, Paul? Queer Nation was kind of came about in the 90s because gay people were getting beaten up in the streets. And, you know, it was a response to violence against the community. And there were a group of people who, many again, who had been in ACT UP, who kind of were stepping up and saying, no, we've had enough, you know. Um, so they would run like boycotts, like boycotting the Olympics and boycotting brands and this kind of stuff. And just really moving that needle forward in a sense in terms of like no you cannot continue to do this to our community you know so it was kind of evolving from active but not so specifically um hiv and aids focused um and then of course magic the marriage equality movement here in the us was um was huge and took decades to make happen and kathy marino thomas who was the national board uh, president for Marriage Quality USA for 17 years and her wife Sheila were in that room at those first gag meetings as well. So what you had was like a real kind of coming together of the tribes of activism, you know, people who had really been in the trenches for decades. Because let's face it, what's, what's really common to gun violence, con gun control and the control of safety in this country it's really similar to how people have tried to control queer, queer people. You know, we were never allowed to do anything. We were not allowed to exist. And even up to the present day, now in Florida, you're not supposed to say the word gay in, in, a, in a school. You know, so it's all about this control. 
And I think what queer activism brings to that is that we kind of come with very, very little to lose, as Kathy would say. You know, we come to the table with so little to lose and everything to gain. So that allows us to really not care a lot. And when you're talking about AIDS activists, you've stared death down just as the kids in Parkland have. You know, you've you've seen your friends die, your partner die. You know, you have people at ACT UP meetings who were there the previous week and are not there the next week, you know. So it's life and death. So I think what what we understand is the stakes. We understand that this is about people's lives, mm. you know, and then similarly, the opposition to that, you know, when you think about gun violence as an epidemic and HIV and AIDS as an epidemic, it really kind of helps you kind of think about it in a way that starts to draw parallels between both epidemics. You know, nobody wanted to do anything for AIDS patients. Nobody wanted to try and prevent AIDS from spreading. Nobody wanted to put money into drugs. Nobody wanted to hurry up the drug uh, approvals that would have saved lives. And in the same way, like you say here, nobody wants to uh, pass HR8, which is the background checks bill that was passed in the House several years ago. It still hasn't been brought to the Senate floor. There are all these things, like you say, that are very straightforward. And to people outside the US, they're like, why don't they just you know, put in a waiting period before somebody can buy a gun? Why don't they run a background check? Why don't they, you know, see if somebody has been got a history of domestic violence, which as it happens, the majority of mass shooters do. Um, so these are basic, ba the bare minimum that you could do to try and save lives. But when you see that these changes are not being implemented again and again, and it's always the same people blocking them, that's when you realize that they actually do not care about other people's lives at all. And they're just primarily concerned in maintaining their own power, maintaining their own privilege and making money. Mm. What direct actions and campaigns has GAG run or what has taken place, um, of course, since since the Pulse shooting? You know, the tragedy of it all uh, is that these things are just repeating in this kind of nihilistic cycle. So unfortunately, there have been plenty of opportunities to for you guys to respond. Yeah, so uh, there's uh, Gag's direct action is very much inspired by ACT UP. And this is what we call civil disobedience. This is like laying down on in the street, putting your body on the line to say, this stuff is so messed up that I'm prepared to get arrested to try and stop it. I'm going to put my body on the line. And so the gag is very much about that. And this means going to going into the corridors of power, going into the Senate buildings, lying down on the ground and saying, I'm not moving. And what does that do? I mean, it sends a very strong message, obviously, to the people who are in those offices, who are in those Senate offices. And it also brings a lot of attention because if you see that on the news, you see like, okay, here's like an 85 year old lesbian who's like lying down in the middle of the Senate building and she's chained to something and is screaming and shouting. And like, what is going on? You know, so it really helps to press the urgency of the issue, you know? So what guys, some of guys campaigns will target directly elected representatives who are continually blocking safer gun laws, such as Mitch McConnell, who was the former uh, Speaker of the House before the Republicans lost this, of uh, the Senate rather. Um, and um, he was the one who stopped this HR8 um, background check bill coming from the Senate floor. He just refused to bring it to the floor. So what Gays Against Guns did, um, very much in the spirit of ACT UP when they brought the ashes of the dead to the White House lawn, if you remember that action, um, they took um, their human beings to Mitch McConnell's office 
And each of the people that were in that office were holding a picture of somebody whose life would have been saved if he had passed the background checks bill. So it's about bringing that type of very direct, very um, in your face, very emotional pointed activism directly to the doors of the people who are most able to prevent it from happening again. Another big thing with gag is following the money. So when you look at, it's not just the politicians. I mean, who's giving the money to the politicians? The money is coming from the NRA. It's coming from the weapons industry. I mean, over, I believe since 2014, over 60% of the money that the NRA get is not from their membership fees. It's from people who make guns or make ammunition, which is a huge change from, when, from the way the NRA started, which was like a benevolent, you know, hunting organization. Um, although how benevolent hunting is, is questionable if you talk to our vegan friends, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, the thing is with the money, they went to BlackRock, which is the largest investment company in, in the world, I believe, or at least it was at the time when they went there and BlackRock was investing people's money in the weapons industry. Mm-hmm. And what happened, why this is really significant is because, like you say, in this cycle of death, every time there is a mass shooting, gun sales spike because people who are into buying guns think that the Democrats or the anti-gun violence lobby are going to try and change the laws and make it more difficult to buy guns. So they run out and buy more guns. You know, so <clears throat> when Obama got elected, gun sales spiked. After Sandy Hook, Certain gun manufacturers ran their production lines 24 hours around the clock to keep up with production demands. So by going to BlackRock and saying to them, the gun companies that you invest stock in, that you are making money out of, are responsible for the lives of people lost, murdered in cinemas and murdered in schools. And taking those images of like six-year-old children that have been killed, for example, in the cinema shooting in Aurora and saying, BlackRock, you've got blood on your hands. That is really shocking to them. I mean, they didn't know what to do when like 50 crazy queers stampeded into their lobby, you know, screaming and shouting, lying down, dying, you know, holding up these pictures of dead people, you know. And, you know, after pressure from GAG and from other GVP groups, BlackRock did eventually change the policy and move away from that. I mean, of course, they're still investing in nuclear weapons and stuff, but, you know, bit by bit. Mm. Um, and then the, the human beings then are not often thought about as a form of direct action, but that, that as a form of kind of performance protest is incredibly powerful. You know, like just, I think it really cuts through the statistics, you know, the numbers that just tend to just bl- bl- explode our brains because we can't compre- comprehend, you know, what does it mean when like 45,000 people are shot dead every year? You know, how do you, you know, but if you can get the idea of one person into somebody's mind, but then maybe you can sow some seed in there that's maybe going to change their change their ideas. You mentioned the term creative protest there, and I think um, that's something that the queer community is is hugely versed in, and and oftentimes the most um, impactful or influential campaigns are not. And when protest movements are not necessarily the ones with the most people, but the ones that are most creative, visually creative, creative and tactics and all that kind of stuff. Um, What has the insanity and hate um, of the last couple of weeks been like for you guys, um, considering what happened with the racist mass shooting in Buffalo and another hate filled shooting in in a school in, in Texas? Because it's funny to me listening and watching and reading American media right now, where there seems to be this focus on 
um, the tactical flaws of the response of the police in the situation in Texas, where it's like, okay, perhaps, you know, like maybe they got those things wrong. But the fact is, is that there was this teenager who was able to buy these guns and walk in, you know, it does feel a bit wood from the trees. Oh, and that's so typical of so much of the mainstream media in this country, you know, and the, the issue, let me put it this way. This week, I've been filming at two different ma- rallies for two different mass shootings in the space of one week. There have been more mass shootings in this country than we have had days. There's at least one mass shooting every day in the United States. There's over 100 110 people that die from a gun every day in this country. Guns are the number one killer of kids in the United States now. And there are more guns in America than there are people. So talking about whether the cops did the right thing or not is just a smokescreen. What we're talking about is that there are so many guns in this country and they are so easy to get that, of course, people are getting shot left, right and center. What else is going to happen? You know, so this is the reality that we're living in. And we're also living in a country that is incredibly divided. We're living in a country where gun ownership is linked so intrinsically to your identity um, that it just becomes, I mean, it's unfathomable. I'm lost for words, to be honest. You know, it's like when you're standing there in Times Square And you're looking at these photographs of 10-year-old kids who've been shot down. And then you understand that Abbott, who's the governor of Texas, recently dropped the age requirement to buy a gun in Texas from 21 to 18. And the guy who walked into that elementary school and shot up all those 10-year-olds had just turned 18. Mm. You know, he was also known to be troubled much as the guy who shot up those 17 kids in Parkland was troubled. But yet in states like Florida, in states like Texas, there is no way that you are allowed to raise your hand as a teacher or as a cop or anybody and say, I'm worried about this kid. They've been making threats. They've been talking about guns. Da, da, da. You can't do any of that. So this is what this is why they talk about red flag laws. So specific states have been trying to bring in these red flag laws. There was one here signed in um, New York State a couple of years back. And what that does is that empowers people who are in positions of supervising kids or just around kids of saying, I'm worried about this, um, this particular 16 year old because they're particularly violent and the way they're speaking to the women in the class is really the young girls is really trouble, trouble, da, da, da. you know, and you can then flag that and possibly prevent them from buying a gun, mm. you know. And like you were saying earlier, these are simple things that could be put in place. Waiting periods. Why do, what, you know, do hunters are not going to care if they're going to wait two weeks to buy their fifth gun, you know? Yeah. And One the other the, thing is, it's mostly the same people that are getting shot, you know? It's marginalized people. It's queer people. It's queer people of color. It's women, you know? It's just, you know, and then the mass shooter thing, it tends to be a white thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's a male white thing. One of the big pieces of the puzzle that I often don't hear spoken about is, um, I mean, this is very like loosey-goosey theory, but how uh, countries outwardly facing motivations and actions become reflected back in the domestic context. So I'm thinking in particular of when you watch, um, you know, 
uh, CNN or something. The, for me, the most interesting thing is the ad breaks because you have you can see the cycle of how um, society is operating with regards to um, pharmaceutical advertisement, um, military health insurance, um, you know, meaningless consumer goods, of course. But you have this kind of cycle of military, pharma, um, you know, embedded violence, of course, in the military itself. And, you know, America to the rest of, of, of the world, you know, has this perpetual war machine that is incredibly violent, propagandist, um, imperialist, and yet is reflected back to the country as this kind of entire suite of, of protectors and stuff like that. So I think for people outside of America, it's no surprise that that um, military uh, nihilism um, and destruction is boomeranged back and internalized in this kind of um, violence that is also underscored by bizarre uh, masculinity and racism uh, a lot of the time. In the same way that the colonialism of the, you know, of of the English society has now kind of boomeranged back and there's a kind of a self-colonization going on. There doesn't seem to be any um, process or any opening for people to actually question the American military. I mean, even people who seem like totally cool or, you know, I don't know, <laughs> like, you know, liberal, quote unquote, liberal or even Democrats, you know, have this pathological desire to that. It's almost sacrilege to to even question the the, the, the American military. That just seems to me a big piece of the puzzle missing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all weapons, right, at the end of the day. And it is this colonial mentality, this gunslinger, this maverick mentality that ties into, you know, like you say, American military expansion, the perpetual war, and also now the permanent war on the streets of America mm. where people are shooting each other. You know, it's the same thing. The defense budget in the Senate just flies through every time. Billions and billions and billions of dollars, never questioned. But try and pass the tiniest little gun safety law, which is a law against weapons, and that gets blocked again and again. The people who are casting these votes, of course, are bought and paid for. The NRA funds senators' campaigns to the tune of millions. <clears throat> they f funded Donald Trump's campaign to the tune of $30 million, which is the most that any single organization has ever funded a presidential candidate. And it's not just the money that they give directly to the candidates. It's also the money that they use to put into super PACs that are going to put out ads against your opponent. So such and such is weak on defense or is weak on gun laws, you know? So people like Ted Cruz, Mitch McConnell, the ones that are blocking these laws, they have taken millions of dollars from the NRA. So this is what you have, right? You have this. And what I think is really interesting is that the American psyche, you know, ties into this idea of being a maverick, being a cowboy, you know, and to, to the rest of us, it sounds so stupid. And you know what I mean? It's, and I mean, and dangerous really. Um, but, you know, the country was based on that. It was based on the genocide of the native peoples, um, which guns played a huge part into. But what, what contemporary American identity is connected to is the gun. Mm. And that's just mind boggling. When you think that your identity 
is connected to an, an inanimate object, your national identity. I can't think of other countries. I mean, you know, the French, do the French people feel like they're, they're, they're baguettes? No, they, they don't, you know. Whereas Americans, a lot of Americans are really, really connecting their personal identity and their conception of freedom to gun ownership. But here's the thing. It's not about freedom. It's about control. That's the thing. Because if you make people really into guns, first of all, you're greatly, you're putting them at a huge risk. You're five times more likely to get shot if you have a gun in the house than if you don't. You know, for women, those figures are even higher. Women are mostly shot by people they know, their partners, their male partners for the most part. So it's not about making you safe. More guns equals more death, always. If America, if guns in America made you safer, we'd be the safest country on the planet. And instead, we are the country that every other country looks to and just shakes their head and thinks, what the hell is going on? You know, you can't, you're not safe in subways, hospitals. Yesterday, there was you know, four people shot dead in a, in a medical center in Oklahoma. You know, it's relentless. But this idea of freedom, I think, is really compelling because if you think that your freedom is tied to a gun you're sadly deluded because you are now in that nexus of violence aggression opposition all of that that's what's going through your mind all the time that's not freedom that's being controlled and the other thing about being of about getting people into that mindset much like abortion this is like a single issue topic for voters there mm. are millions of people who will go out and not vote for a candidate because they are talking about bringing some gun, gun safety measures. Even though that candidate might be the one trying to get them better education, better health care, better access to a whole range of things. But if they are anti-gun, that's it. You're not going to vote for them. You're going to go and vote for the same old white guy that you that you voted for your whole life and your daddy voted for his daddy before him. You know? mm -hmm. Let's talk about that concept of freedom in terms of the intersections we're discussing around uh, queer activism, because there does seem to be, um, you know, a Venn diagram between bodily autonomy, uh, the, the flawed concept or paradoxical concept of American freedom in relation to arming oneself to the teeth, um, the opposition and, and the passing of these, these abhorrent laws around, um, uh, trans autonomy, like your, your, your freedom to live uh, as a trans person. Um, and obviously this, this huge, um, bizarre backlash that we're seeing against really basic fa uh, tenets of, of feminism and, and gender equality. That Venn diagram, it seems to me, appears to be growing increasingly neon with autonomy being chipped away at in the middle. It feels like those things are linked. Of course they're linked, yeah. I mean, because it's the same people who are proposing all these laws. You know, I've been down in D.C. a lot over the last years making this documentary and sitting in at like Senate judiciary meetings and all, you know, and what you end up with in, a, in this country right now that's so divided with this two-party system is that you've got, you can draw a clear line down the middle of the room. On, the, on one side of the room, you've got the Democrats who look like America. You know, they look like, for the most part, what this country looks like. You've got people of color, you've got women, you've got LGBTQ folks in their numbers. On the other side of the room, I guarantee you pretty much every single meeting I've gone into, it's 
all old white guys. I mean, I mean old, <laughs> like old enough to get elected, but maybe one woman, maybe two. But that's what you're talking about. You're talking about the Republican Party becoming more and more extreme because they are the last bastion, they think, of this white patriarchy that the country was built on. It's always been about control. It's been, it was about controlling black people's bodies during slavery. It was about controlling black people's rights to vote after slavery, to use water fountains, to go to schools. It was about controlling women and the vote. It was about controlling women's bodily autonomy. And recently, like you say, it's the same exact patterns of control because now it's transgender folks. Now that trans people are coming out and there's visibility, I mean, LGBTQ people are coming out in such great numbers right now, much, much more than ever before in history. But with that visibility, now we're being attacked. It's easy to attack trans people if you're talking to your constituents in Alabama or Mississippi, because a lot of people don't know trans folks, you know, because a lot of trans kids have to run away from those places because their lives are in danger, you know. And if you can't even use a bathroom without fear of your life, I mean, yeah, it's mind boggling. If you have to get on in your car and drive for thousands of miles to terminate a pregnancy that may possibly kill you, you know, it's the same thing. It's the same old white guys, the same patterns of control. And I think that with gun violence, it's the same thing, you know, but here's the paradox, right? Because if you look at the legislative side of things, states' rights are what people, what the Republicans in particular like to bang on about. It's like, this is why we're seeing these anti-abortion, really restrictive laws being signed in across the country, right? Because the governors are stepping in and signing these bills. Yet, what they don't want states' rights in is gun ownership. There's a case that the Supreme Court are about to issue their determination on called New York and Pistol Rifle Association versus Bruin. Here in New York State, we have states' rights over gun ownership, right? So if you need to carry a gun around New York State, you have to go to the authorities and prove that you've got a really good reason for wanting to do that. You can't just go and buy a gun like this kid in Texas and walk around. You know, in Texas, if you go into a coffee shop, people have guns over their shoulders. Yeah, this the open, open carry, yeah. Open carry, yeah. So the Supreme Court, which of course has been now totally tilted towards this conservative supermajority, a very pro-gun lobby, Supreme Court, um, has already heard arguments in this case. And what this case will mean if it's overturned is that open carry will become the law of the land because the case was saying that this, this pistol association was saying that we should be able to open carry in New York State. It's against our Second Amendment rights. If that gets overturned, all the states in the country that have stricter gun laws, safer gun laws, will now be dealing with things like people opening gun stores on your block, people on the subway with guns, people, tourists from Texas coming to town and having pistols on their hips, you know, when they go to see a Broadway musical. You know, it's going to radically change the landscape. And as we've said before, more guns present means more death, you know. When is the when can we expect the results of, of, of that case? Because I've been reading about it and it just feels I mean, if it wasn't dystopic already, holy moly, like what you're outlining there, which is not a, not not a worst case scenario or a fantasy. It's going to be an outcome. I think it's going to be an outcome. Yeah, because the so they've already heard arguments and 
you know, reading the gun violence prevention media, you know, the comments that the various justices and questions that they asked make us feel that it is going to go in favor of the New York Pistol and Rifle Association. They will issue their final decision along with their, you know, they always write up comments based on on the dissents per se. Um, usually these come out in June. Um, apparently they're quite backed up from what I read. So we're, we're, it's, it's going to come out at some point, but it's coming down the pike. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just terrifying. It really is terrifying. And um, before you go, Paul, tell me a little bit about the, the documentary that you've been making on um, Gays Against Guns. Uh, when can we expect it and how's it all going? It's going really well. I mean, I funnily enough ended up making this documentary almost by accident, you know, but like really important social issues, you know, as a filmmaker, they come in front of you and you're like, who's going to do this? I mean, I should do this because maybe somebody else isn't going to do it. Um, so I showed up at the first Pride March um, right after Pulse um, when GAG had just formed with my camera and just started filming. And I've been working with the group ever since. Um, so for almost six years, um, the film is almost finished. We're looking at to release it in festivals early 2023. So we're working with uh, Screen Ireland um, with this. And um, yeah, it's a, it, the film follows Gays Against Guns, um, their kind of their birth and then the kind of development of their practices, their activism. Um, and we hear they're, they're like a really whip smart group of people, you know, so you really learn a lot watching this film about the history of gun violence in the US, the history of American violence, intersectionality. Um, and then the film also weaves together some very key survivor stories, um, people who were shot and survived, and a woman who lost her young trans daughter to gun at the age of 17. So the film kind of tries to give this full picture of the issues, the activists and the survivors. I can't wait to see it, Paul. Before you go, I have to ask, um, Anytime we have people from who, who are not based in Ireland right now, uh, I always like to ask them, what's it like in your city right now uh, as things, uh, as the wheel turns again um, from, from over the past two, two and a half years now? How's New York? What's the vibe? Well, the, within the gag community, um, it's pride. You know, we're gearing up for the sixth year marking of Pulse. So there's going to be a huge... A collection of human beings representing the 49 lives lost, plus victims of other mass shootings. They're expanding it this year. So that's June 12th. If folks are in New York, please come down. All the stuff is up on the gag social media. Um, we have Pride coming up. We also we have the regular Pride, but we also have the Queer Liberation March, which started a few years ago in response to the corporatization of, of Pride, um, which is always the, the fun party to be at, the fun march. Um, and just, you know, the fact that Yes, we're living in insane times, um, and but for at least Donald Trump is still not the president, at least not right now. Um, New York is coming out of COVID, but I think we're, so there's a lot of relief in some ways. Um, just being in Trump's America was exhausting day in, day out, you know, for pretty much everybody, unless you were a Trump supporter, you know, just he was everywhere. So that kind of media oppression, that kind of stress compounded by COVID, compounded by gun violence, compounded by all these anti-trans bills, all these anti-gay bills, it's been a lot, you know, but at the same time, that kind of oppression also leads to fighting back, you know, so it's a battle, 
It's an ongoing battle. Um, but there's a lot of good stuff happening. People are out partying, <laughs> dancing, you know, hanging out, making out, doing the things that keep us human, make us human. Got a lot of that going on too. So um, summer is here. It's better. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for chatting to us. Really appreciate it. And um, thanks so much for having us on. Uh, at, at the risk of sounding um, like an investment fund, happy pride. <laughs> <laughs> and to you too, and to all the listeners. Andrea, back to the shipping news. What's getting in the sea this week? <laughs> uh, getting in the sea this week is, I'm going to say Texas in general. Uh, not necessarily the people of Texas. It's a lovely place. Um, had a lovely time there when I was there. Went to Austin, obviously. Hipster vibes. Set by set west. And also I went to the home of Dallas. South Fork. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I do was, love Texas. Oh, Texas is one of my favorite places. I love yeah. Texas. However, I don't love their political representatives. No. Um, and as we can see, all the gun control stuff is being led by Texas. That in itself, it, or like actually the lack of gun control um, is by a lot of Texas lawmakers. Uh, so that in itself is bad enough. But then... Uh, you have this news um, of the Supreme Court blocking the state's deplatforming law. So basically, it was a Texas law forbidding social media giants from regulating certain forms of online speech. Um, and it, it thankfully has been blocked by the US Supreme Court. But it would have meant that larger tech companies wouldn't be able to ban or censor um, any users for their views. Um, now, obviously, there's a bigger conversation about free speech and what that is. But I think. Um, a private company deciding what the boundaries and rules are is fair enough. And uh, the fact that a Texas lawmakers are trying to bring that in is actually quite terrifying when you look at all the uh, impact of uh, the gun conversations, what is happening on Reddit, the violence against uh, women primarily, with misogyny that rolls in there, all that thing, all those protections, the trans attacks. Um. Yeah, so I just think it just feels like it's bubbling into this pot of hate. So, yeah, bubble off into the sea, maybe. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and now it's time for It's Bananas. This week, It's Bananas was councillor a councillor, a local councillor, um, Irish councillor, James Gagan. We were only asking what he was up to recently. Well, and lo and go. behold, we manifested him. He made a plea to the French ambassador um, asking for an apology for Irish uh, supporters of Liverpool who made the trip to the chaotic uh, Champions League uh, match at the weekend. Um, but you have to wonder why an Irish councillor was asking a French official for an apology for an English team's supporters. It, like, it just is like South Scarlet. Yeah, I mean, it's just the classic Fine Gael way, isn't it? I will do something that is, that is of no consequence and call that being a politician. Is that not the entire, like, 
neoliberal MO. Let's change the name of the... <laughs> the fast track. <laughs> it's not the Champions League anymore. It's the in the Chaos League. Oh, well, there he is now, back, Jimmy G. Back in the news. He's, got, he's not going anywhere. He'll be running for a TD's position again. Off you go. Mm-hmm. Now it's time. <laughs> like, though, seriously, Andrea, you know, apart from desiring uh, the democratic process to kick in and uh, witnessing the, um, the, the, the tectonically seismic election that is going to take place in this country and for all the reasons that we, we are looking forward to that in many ways, um, I just can't wait for our election podcast series. So oh my God, me if, if, that's n- if that alone is not a reason for you to write to your TD right now and demand general election. <laughs> and if that also is not a reason alone to maybe support us on Patreon so we can get to that point so yes. in case we disappear. <laughs> yes, don't make us disappear. Um, support us, patreon.com forward slash United Ireland and thank you so much to everyone who already does. Okay, Andrea, turn that frown upside down. It's time for our fave bits. Finally, it's been a very stressful episode, hasn't it? Um, first up, like I can't get over how much I loved a top one. If you have the opportunity to go and see this film in the cinema, do it before it leaves the cinema because it is made for the big screen. My OG producer, Jerry Bruckheimer, CSI mastermind, he makes everything just so cinematic and so fab and so like oh obsessed and I was kind of like oh god here I go Top Gun like that's a lad's buzz film it's not my buzz it's fucking brilliant edge of the seat stuff I can't get over it and I really think it needs the support you know just support an independent movie (laughs) small small cinema small indie cinema I haven't seen it yet I'm waiting to see it with Sarah because obviously she is a Top Gun obsessive I really in a surprise to no one it followed on from me watching the Tom Cruise uh, being interviewed about his love of Nicole that came to the fore. It's from years ago, but it's uh, where it came out that uh, what's his face? Christian Bale based the character of American Psycho on Tom Cruise. Oh, I well believe that one. So it's like you have that at the back of your mind while the film's going on. As yeah, well. I mean, it is funny how people are just completely overlooking um, Tom Cruise's, you know, cult leadership to enjoy a film but you know you have to take what you can guess <laughs> like suddenly my moral compass is falling quickly because I'm literally like I need something I can't live in this moralistic life anymore no so moralist <laughs> I'd say there's listeners going yeah right would you get a grip um anyway moving on swiftly my next thing is actually about love it is Connor Creighton, who has been on our uh, podcast before. He's so beautifully spoken and soft and full of positive vibes and energy. He has a new book that is being launched today, Thursday, and it is called, oh, excuse me, uh, The Truth About Love. And it's not just, whilst it is um, uh, a book about romance uh, and relationships, it is also about the fact that we seem to be uh, 
running a world that is led by anti-love and running systems and uh, organizations that shape our society are led for without love. And if we could flip the switch and make love the priority and not feel like hippies saying make love the answer, um, that the world could flip into a better place that is run. And that goes down to like the transport authority, if that was run with love of how to transport people rather than how to make more money, we'd have better buses. So if it kind of includes everything. So really excited to get delve into that book. Um, as it is uh, Pride Month, Una. Hi, Gay. Hi, Gay. Uh, Brodool.art is a website that if you want to support uh, queer art this, this season of celebration and maybe protest as well. Will we throw in a bit of protest? Um, have a look there. All uh, queer artists um, and supporting LGBTQIA plus um, charities and things. So that's B-R-O-D-U-I-L dot art. Um, then also there is a co- open call for artists to uh, design the new national monument uh to remember HIV and AIDS um, people who died. Um, so there's details of it. It's a really unhandy link of gov.ie forward slash English forward slash publication forward slash blah, 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 blah. So if you go to Panty has it on her Instagram and Veda, I think as well, they're both on the board of it. Um, but if you Google um, National Monument, you will find it if you are an artist and would like to be in the mix for designing it. Stunning. And I couldn't go on and leave this week behind without including a homage to one of my favourite TV programmes and moments. We need some sad goodbye music here, like Time to Say Goodbye or something. Time to say Burns TV show is gone. The last episode was on Monday. I was hoping for a homage of all the um I want to call, I don't want to call them sketches, but they were. <laughs> <laughs> um mock-ups of situations. Um but it wasn't to be. We did not get the homage, but I would like to pay homage to an iconic TV moment in history. Yes, I, I yeah, for TE now they should just put out. You're right. They should just put out a half hour, like just real of Kate O'Connell injecting people with the vaccine. The time there was the fake airplane, and then the like people who looked like they were coming back from Ibiza, and, and then the forty eight hours, <laughs> and there was the shop. How you, how to do the shop? Remember that? How to go in the door? Yeah, yeah. That was re- like, I didn't know. Do you know what though? Fair play to Claire Byrne because she gave an interview in the RT Guide um, a while ago just being like, I'm actually a bit wrecked and I want to spend some time with my kids. And I think it takes guts to step away from something that is successful and that is a big part of your career. And as everyone knows, Claire is an absolute boss. Like she's so nice and so professional and so great. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, she's a fantastic broadcaster and she's been a fantastic broadcaster all through her career and she's a real grafter. So fair play to her for calling time on something. And um, obviously she's still on the radio and all that. So well done, Claire. Also, I mean, I know that you're not meant to like objectify people or whatever, but she like, does she have the best hair in RTE? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I remember when I was at the show watching just the perfection and the precision that was involved in smoothing it, getting it perfect. It was like, yeah. She's great. Just all around great. Okay. My fave bits. Go. So I am fully refreshed, reset, ready to go from my relaxed rave utopian fantasia that was drop everything on Inishir last weekend. Shout out to Mary Nally and all the drop crew. It was absolutely gorgeous. Shout out to the weather gods as well. Shout out to our 94 year old man on tea, Maggie, queen of the island. And there was loads of gorgeous stuff uh, happening uh, over the weekend. This is a festival that happens every two years on Inishir, but hadn't happened since 2018. Oh, for some reason, can't remember what now. And um, but I just want to say, Roisin Berkeley, the harpist, played a gig at what was called the Coral Pavilion, which is kind of this open stage close to the beach next to this gorgeous um, skate park, this like ramp, uh, kind of like mini ramp, half pipe type thing that had been built with Goblin Magazine and the children on the island. So it was just so beautiful. Roisin Berkeley played a gig and just on her harp, her on the stage it was absolutely extraordinary and I, I people will know her as um, she often plays with Gemma Levy, and um, she's such an amazingly talented musician but honest to God I think it was one of the most beautiful um, not just, just the whole vibe the, sa- the sound that she was creating the cadence in the notes how she was actually playing it was one one of the most beautiful gigs I've ever been at in, in my life. I just think she is such an extraordinary talent. I think she's next level. Like, so I just want to say, Roisin Berkeley is one of my fave bits this week. Um, gear change, uh, as you know, Andrea, I enjoy the odd sports documentary series. Correct. Um, and I recent well finished last night All or Nothing, Man City which is a documentary on Man City's seminal, if you want to call it that. I'm a United fan. doesn't matter. 2017 to 2018 season. It's on Prime Video. Where are the leaders now, aren't they? Uh, yeah, they also won the league again, yeah. The leaders. <laughs> they are the leaders. They're the leaders. <laughs> They're the Taoiseachs of the Premier League. Is that correct? <laughs> um, and uh, it's, I mean, look, it's essentially a an extended piece of propaganda. However, it is very enjoyable to watch. You get to see all the goals of the season and you get to see how Pep Guardiola is like the most intense, intense man. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoy that. So if people are kind of jonesing for a little sports binge and haven't seen that. Um, I have something to add to sports talk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, like, go on. Uh, I just have to find it because I obviously don't know it off by heart. Um, so Daniel Lambert, who is head of, is he head of Bose anymore or what's his buzz? Yeah, he's uh, heavily involved in Bose. Yeah. And the upper echelons of the Dublin seven stalwarts. 
Um, he highlighted the other day the fact that AC Milan, which is a huge club, um, released a statement about nurturing a club based around solid values um, rather than um, investment for rich people to just control it. And I, uh, I just think it's really interesting when the leader the leader, the head of AC Milan said uh, about the concerns about the game's future. He said, without values, football's empty. It's 22 millionaires kicking pieces of leather around on a piece of grass. Football is a feeling of community and common values. I don't worry for Manchester City, PSG or Newcastle because they have incredibly supportive ownership. I worry for the rest. It's much more powerful to create something than it is to pray a wealthy individual or nation state will save you. It's very important for all of us to think about this deeply and move football to a more sustainable model where everyone can participate and it genuinely is based on the merit of ideas rather than access to money. And I think that's maybe something we could all think about for the whole world rather than just football. Correct. Um, yes. My other fave bit. Yes. 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 Correct. I, I, I agree with that statement and with those values. Um, I am back in the Phoenix Park doing my little walks and it is in my fave bits this week because it is just so green and lush at the moment and the sunset, sunsets are stunning. And speaking of the Phoenix. That nature. That is nature. Yes. Uh, speaking of the Phoenix Park, um, the uh, Fino are playing in Whelan's next Thursday, June 9th. Um, deadly upcoming band. They're playing upstairs in Whelan's. If you're in Dublin, check them out. Beyond the Pale is happening. Um, the weekend of the 10th, 11th, 12th. Um, Gorge Festival in Glendalough Estate. Also, see, also nature. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm doing a couple of bits at a two utopian events. One about... Uh, how to be a newspaper, which is creating a souvenir zine for everyone with Sarah Maria Griffin, and also how to talk to animals, which is about um, unlocking the power of animal communication. And I'm delighted that Sean Renane is joining us for that event. Sean is on a mission to record the bird song of every species of bird in Ireland. Uh, he's an ornithologist and has a wealth of expertise, in particular in um, well, in loads of stuff. But we were talking on the phone yesterday about vocal mimicry of birds, and so he's going to be talking about that and how, um, yeah, how you how you can literally uh, communicate with 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 animals, which is kind of where we're going in all different ways. <laughs> She's with the birds, huh? <laughs> um, oh, Forbidden Fruit is on this weekend. Uh, a festival in Kilmainham. I'm going to pop out to see Lord on Sunday. Very excited. She's one of those people in my bucket, se- bucket, bucket seat, <laughs> bucket list of people I've never seen live. So I'm excited about that. I'm going to see Bicep in their hometown of Belfast at Ava this weekend. Yes. Yes. Oh. Get it. Guess what? What? This is going to be my first ever festival. Not what well, this is like an experiment. I'm going on the complete dry. Oh, interesting. I, like, I know that doesn't shouldn't sound like such a big deal, but like I just feel like it's such a weird world to go into sober. Oh, I think you're way better. Like I think in terms of doing things sober, like festivals and gigs are like the best thing. Like when I do my couple of months or a few months off, um, uh, beer basically and red wine uh, a year I find going to gigs and festivals and stuff like that fab because you, there's so much to entertain you you know and it is just really then about extracting yourself from melty drunk people who obviously become absolute like gargoyles and monsters when you're not drinking 
And then you're like, shit, I'm one of them. I am that. gargoyle <laughs> usually. This fun house mirror makes me look incredibly different. Um, other bits, La which is that deadly event in Hen's Teeth in Dublin 8 uh, that the Ireland's Edge crew are doing uh, on June 15th is sold out. I'm interviewing Cello at that. Very excited. And uh, speaking of Belfast, Andrea, Docs Ireland is on in Belfast at the end of June. There's a Whopper program. Um, that new documentary in Sinead O'Connor actually is going to be there. So if you're in Belfast, check that oh, out. My friend did the music for that. Oh, stunning. Sinead O'Connor? <laughs> <laughs> like um, the score. Yeah. 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 Um, and I'm doing a talk uh, with a bunch of people about the state of journalism. I don't think they're thinking of it uh, in that, uh, with that kind of emphasis on the state of journalism <laughs> on, on the 30th of June. So if you're in Belfast or around that area, uh, Google Docs Ireland and get user tickets. Also, Body and Soul is coming up 17th Ooh. to 19th. And just once again, their lineup, Roisin Murphy. I'm going to go and just see Roisin. I think again. I'm going to go, I'm going to go down and I'm going to go and, and I have to see that show again. And even like, like even that day, Pillow Queens and CMAT are playing as well. So if you're like, mm, can I do the whole weekend? Just go down and check that out like deadly. I'm going to go to that server as well. I am such a, a brave spirit. I know. <laughs> spirit being the operative word there. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So those are the five bits. Loads of five bits this week. Okay. Now, like that's not the end of festivals. Then like the weekend after Body and Soul is the Mother Block Party. Correct. Like, it's just so delicious. And then all together now again, it's just so, what, how great. Um, now it's time for Book of the Week. Book of the Week. I'm breaking my own rules this week. I actually haven't read the book of the week this week, but it's been- You've done that loads of times, you know. No, I haven't. You have. I've read parts of them at least. Um yes, but I basically I was um planned to read it when I was away and then I didn't get a chance and a mate of mine shout out um to Catherine Conroy interviewed Emily Pine recently. Really fantastic interview actually. And um uh, on about her new novel Ruth and Penn and I'm really it's just like sitting right here beside me right now and that's going to be my evening is starting that novel it's meant to be brill great writer super into it vibes all around so that's my book of the week also shout out to Louise O'Neill our previous book of the week uh, person and I can like I mean I think the podcast has to take credit for Idol being uh, top of the charts three weeks in a row <laughs> You're welcome, Louise. Um, <laughs> such a such a great book. Uh, if you haven't picked up Idol, really, really fab. Actually, if you're if you have a little break planned, if you want, uh, if you're going on a holiday or something, and want like the perfect mm. juicy page turner poolside book, that's the one. Can I also add this? I'm going back to fave bits, but it was your fave bit, and that now I'm taking it again. Everything everywhere. Oh, did you go and see it? It's fucking bananas. Everything it? everywhere all at once. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Along with Uncalling Keen, I think Everything Everywhere and Uncalling Keen are my favourite films of the year so far. But isn't it amazing? 
Oh my God. It is absolutely batshit and fab. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. Sausages. Loads of, <laughs> loads of great um, films out at the moment. Loads of great books. Loads of great festivals. Things can be stressful, but art, nature, love and pals hold the answer. Oh. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. Crystal Clear playing this weekend at, at Forbidden Fruit and I believe the after party at Pig. Oh. Um, so what's the TCR this week, Andrea? The tuna chicken roll is, as we're all looking for answers, music is the answer. Fab. Into it. I've been Inam Lally. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was Gays Gays Against Against Guns. Guns. Happy Pride year. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Gay. Dancing and prancing, grooving, keep on moving, flying, stop your crying, choosing while you're cruising. Music is the answer to your problems. Keep on moving, then you can solve them. If you feel that you can't take no more, and your feet are headed for the door, gotta keep on dancing and prancing, grooving, keep on moving, flying, stop your crying, choosing while you're cruising. Music is the answer to your problems. I'm moving, then you can solve them. At 12 midnight, I'll be waiting for you. So don't forget what you have to do. Gotta keep on dancing and prancing. Grooving, keep on moving. Flying, stop your crying. Choosing while you're cruising. Music is the answer to your problems. One
Music is the answer 